This call is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy Sunbelt Week. Happy Sunbelt Week, indeed. It is, it is time for our annual let's preview other conferences and then eventually get to the ACC. Uh, we do talk about Syracuse plenty on these episodes still, but um, to fill some space and to invite a little bit of the expertise that we've developed over the years about other leagues and just talking about random teams, um, we talk about these conferences just for fun. Maybe you care. Hopefully you do. I mean, I, I think results are mixed over the years. I think I think the, the people who are listening, you know, years and years in, I think care. And if you're new, like, you know, we're going to give you some Syracuse stuff. And if you don't want some of the rest, that's your prerogative. But I always think it's a, an enriching experience to learn about these smaller schools and the other schools that populate college football. Yeah, I mean, Syracuse is one of 130 teams playing uh, FBS football. Um, when you're looking to see, you know, why is John yelling about scheduling? Who could we schedule that we don't already? Well, now you're going to learn about all those teams. Well, a, a lot of them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them. Shout out to Texas State. This may be the only time we mentioned you this week. We'll see if we get to you. Uh, before we get to the Sunbelt stuff, why don't we talk a little bit about some Syracuse-related matters. Um, first and foremost, uh, I'd like to apologize to Bill Connolly in advance for Syracuse fans kind of overtaking the uh, ACC Power Rankings post on SB Nation that went up this week. Um, I think it started off all, all well and good, and then then you had, like, there, it seems like the, the ACC previews this year had, like, a couple, like, not trolls necessarily, just like bad posters. And like, they kind of got called out immediately and they just kind of kept running with it. And then SU fans just never really let it go, um, self-included in, in the comments. And you ended up with a pretty rousing discussion about how bad Boston College was. Um, Clemson and Syracuse fans going at it. A couple of Georgia Tech fans chiming in to no participation. And uh, Florida State fans also getting into it with Clemson and Syracuse fans. I actually didn't venture into the comments. I did notice that after his Clemson preview went up the other day, um, Clemson fans were very mad online about the, A, that he had the goal to rank from third uh, behind Alabama and Georgia, but also that he said that the Alabama game um, on paper, when you look at the like the five factors and the SP plus numbers, like was a lot closer than the 28-point deficit. Um and I get why if you don't understand how those numbers work, you would think that's ridiculous because, like, watching the game, it was pretty jarring. But I think he explained it pretty well on Twitter, but obviously that doesn't matter for, like, a lot of people. So um, Bill's had quite the week. Oh, yeah, Clemson fans. I mean, they're always mad online, but they were hilariously mad online. This week um, I saw that one guy on Clemson radio uh, said he was in danger to college football. That was that was amazing. I didn't listen to it, but I saw the tweets, and I, I was like – it's so perfect. Like, guys, you just won the national title. Who cares? Yeah, I uh, I really hope that um, that at some point in my life, I'm also referred to as a danger to college football by a Clemson fan. Um, it's 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 now a, a mission of mine to make it happen. Yes, the, the list: um, Jadavian Clowney, uh, Bill Connolly, and maybe one day John Casillo. <laughs> If only. Um, but yeah, Bill kind of spelled out why, you know, Syracuse could be the second best team in the conference, but um, why also a lot of other teams could be the second best team in the conference. 
And, you know, I, I think he nails it here. I think a lot of Syracuse fans were taking some issue with the fact that we were ranked sixth. I think we all need to chill out. It's only been one year of like respectability here. Um, Bill's tier two after Clemson was Miami, Florida State, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Syracuse, NC State in that order. Uh, I think that's completely fair when you look at the talent that Miami and Florida State have access to and have on the roster and what the recruiting has looked like. Uh, Virginia and Virginia Tech, I think there's reason to doubt and believe in both of those. And then for us and NC State, I think we're kind of in the same boat in a lot of ways. I think we have uh, better defenses coming back. We're replacing uh, quarterbacks. They're replacing a lot more on offense than we are, but obviously we face them on on a big Thursday night game. Um, down in Raleigh. So, you know, all, most of these things will be settled on the field. But yeah, I, I, I said it in the comments. I've said it on this program. I know you have too. Like Syracuse could very well have the second best record in the ACC again and not be the second best team by way of S&P. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are going to be national things that work against us in S&P plus. One is the recruiting aspect, which isn't everything, but it doesn't help us when we've been um, you know, in the 50s in our rolling rankings. So that's always going to keep us down a bit. Um, we've had efficiency issues. We've had uh, just like parts of our game where we've, we've made up for it with other great things. But um, like last year's team, I think, outplayed its S&P Plus. And I don't think anyone was like all that worked up at the end of the year. And we were what? What would we finish in S&P Plus? Like, I think it was 40, that was like 40th, 41st, something like that. Yeah. So like, are you really that concerned about what the computer said? when the computer is supposed to be predictive and the season's over and you're 10 and three, like it doesn't matter. So let's try not to. Also, we had a lot of, yeah, we also had plenty of turnover luck and like just a basic knowledge of like what that is, like tells you all you need to know. Yeah. So like, I, I, I understand a little bit more than worked up at the beginning of the season, but like if at season's end, we finish sixth in the ACC, like Bill C has us in his power rankings. I think most of us would be pretty happy. Like, Obviously, I don't think that's our ceiling, but I think we would, like, if you told me I had to settle for something, like, I'll take sits, and if that's, like, the new normal, then I'm, I'm fine with it. And this is not a super rosy, we talked about last week, it's not, like, the rosiest projection for Syracuse, so we very well may, may surpass it, and the other teams in our tier, like, there's no guarantee any of them are better than us. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I think it's just a dumb thing to work up over. Yeah, agreed. And really, if you look at the rankings further, like Florida State's the only team in the, in the Atlantic that's listed ahead of us here. And like considering where we were going into last year, um, I think all of us would have taken a third or fourth place finish in the Atlantic. You know, I think we're favored away. to Florida State. Uh, right now, in right now, we're, fa- we're not favored according to S and P. No, um, in, in Vegas, I think we are. In, in, in Vegas, we are. But yeah, I I, I think it's going to be a little bit of a toss up, but. I mean, there's a lot of football to play until that point, though. There's going to be a lot of really big games and a lot of season-defining games before that one. Um, we'll see what narrative that game takes on uh, when we get to that point in October. Yeah, it's uh, it's just, you know, these are things that you, you look at just to get a sense of where these teams are, but they're they're not, you know, ever going to be perfect. Uh, even, you know, SB Plus, I think, is one of the better predictive systems and what hits, like, maybe 53, 54% of the time in terms of the game prediction. So, college football so, so hard to to guess beyond, like, the top couple schools that it's it's really not worth getting worked up over unless someone is just outwardly trolling or they're from the Orlando Sentinel. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't seen their Syracuse preview yet. I'm sure it's coming at some point. I'll, uh, where where I'll are they in their list? I haven't been paying attention because, obviously... 
I saw when they were somewhere around like 118. I haven't looked since because I know we're probably going to be a while. Um, but yeah, yes, I think we're we have... sitting, sitting pretty at 77. I, I feel like when it comes out, we just need to do like, uh, we just need to do like a live read. Like we just go in blind and, and, and just read it aloud here. We, we, should have a, we should have a contest on the site to predict which players that are no longer on the team are featured <laughs> in the preview. Because there's going to be at least two or three. I, I would I guarantee it was like five. Yeah, it was it was a lot less year. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, while we're here talking about a lot of teams, uh, Dino Babers made some headlines today. I think he said it like a few days ago, and I included it in the links, thinking like, okay, this is interesting. And then it's kind of like picked up a bit of steam since. Um, where Dino said he was at a football camp in Pennsylvania that Penn State was like sort of co-hosting. And he basically encouraged players to stay in the Northeast. Um, he said, you know, go to Penn State, go to Pitt, go to Rutgers. Not- notably, he left off Boston College. But, um, yeah, advice. he basically – good advice in general. Um, but, yeah, he, he encouraged players to stay in the Northeast um, and, you know, win championships up there. Obviously, it's been a while since the Northeast team has really been in that conversation. Penn State's been the closest um, by a considerable margin. Um, SU probably second – then Pitt, then Rutgers and Boston College, mostly nowhere to be found. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it was interesting. I, I know uh, a couple of publications have talked about this. Like, it shows he has a lot of confidence in the product Syracuse has against uh, its recruiting opponents, like Penn State, like Pitt, like Rutgers. Um, it shows that you know he's not scared of those teams. He's not scared of those coaching staffs. Um, and you know, really selling. I think selling the region. I'm um, selling sticking around the region. I, I do think is part of the challenge in the Northeast when you have a talent diaspora that's already going on for, for the last couple of decades. Um, you know, now you have these, these kids that it's really easy to see, you know, what Alabama is building, what Clemson's building. If you're sitting in your home in Philadelphia or Connecticut or Massachusetts, you know, it didn't used to be that way. Now it's very easy to see that. Um, I, I think that, you know, you got to sell them on the weather and you also sell them on just the competitiveness of football, um, in the region. And that's not something that we've really had much probably since, you know, the big East formed. Um, and you started to see a little bit of fracturing there where realistically, like the top, like the top, you know, Northeast programs, us, Penn state, like I guess, West Virginia, Pitt, BC, like only about half of them were ever good at the same time. And we really need to see like something like we could be seeing this year uh, and, and some future years where, most of those schools, Rutgers aside, um, are are at least respectable seven, eight wins. Yeah, I, I totally get why Mavers did this. Um, a, like you said, he's confident that, you know, he's not going to say this and then Pitt's going to turn into a national title contender here. Um, but there is something to, like, the, the, the rising tide lifting all boats in the region. And we've got so many players going outside of it, especially – with the Big Ten uh, getting more involved in Jersey with Rutgers' move out there. The SEC is way more involved in, like, New Jersey and some of the surrounding areas um, than even probably, like, 10 years ago. Um, Recruiting in general has become more national, and that hurts when, you know, the Northeastern players uh, that do rise up and and are legit college football players aren't staying in the region. Um, It makes it that much harder for these programs to compete. So... Uh, and, and I honestly think if you have, like, five or six competitive college football programs in uh, the Northeast, like, it's it's probably only going to make the high school football better and, and you know, shows a pathway to that. So 
Um, yeah, I, I don't think this is like, you know, groundbreaking, but it was interesting to see, uh, you know, some people almost treat it like a dare from neighbors, but um, I thought there was, a, there was, there was definitely value in his comments, but at the end of the day, it is, they are camp comments. Um, and those are only go so far. Like I'm sure if you asked him, uh, you know, in secret, he, he would love to be the only dominant program in the Big East, or <laughs> not the Big East, in the Northeast. Um, but it's more likely that, you know, for a program in the Northeast to rise up and become a national player, um, that it comes from, you know, that region becoming more strong in general than, like, one school just having a crazy year. Uh, it's There's just, there, there is something to be gained from it. So I definitely understood why he said what he said. Oh yeah, and I, I think the you know local investment side of things like really can't be you know overstated just in terms of like you look in the south, you look at how you know really good college football programs are able to encourage investment, and that's you know in Texas and Florida, in, in parts of the southeast um, like Alabama and Arkansas, uh, and Mississippi. Like the, the the local success of these colleges do encourage more investment. And like in the Northeast, we just don't see as much. Um, and, and, you know, SU's, SU's failures on the football field in, in recent years, last year aside, um, are, are just as much a part of that as anybody as anything else. Um, obviously, you know, you have the additional parts of just people moving away from cold weather states in general. But I, 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 I do think that, yeah, if all of these schools find ways to be consistent, you know, seven, eight, nine win programs, suddenly you're looking at a much different conversation. And, and and if they start playing each other a little bit more too, I mean, obviously, you know, not included in this conversation yet, it's just been the conference realignment stuff that goes into that. You know, when you have um, all those programs spread across, you know, three or four different leagues, um, certainly becomes hard for them to really compete, quote unquote, on the field. But um, we're facing Rutgers the next couple of years. Obviously we face BC every year. We face Pitt every year in the ACC um, we haven't been, faced Penn State in a while, and I don't really see that changing anytime soon. Um, they don't even have enough room on their schedule for Pitt, so I feel like Syracuse is kind of lower on the totem pole. But nonetheless, uh, cool conversation. Great to see Dino kind of out ahead of it, and and great to see that um, you know outside conversations are are focused on on Dino doing a great job here and and applauding the uh, the chutzpah, I guess that that it takes. To, uh, to to lead with this, you know, it, it, with with James Franklin like feet away from you. Yeah, it's also good to hear just because he's not a northeastern guy, um, and I, you know, he could leave tomorrow for a bigger job. But it's nice to hear him at least like verbalizing a commitment to the region when obviously Babers like didn't have any real connection here until he got here. Um, the closest he had really been was was like Bowling Green, so. Hey, Dino, um, yeah. D- Dino said when he was at the uh, what's it called this that LA alumni event last month, he said straight up that uh, or maybe it was April. I forget at this point. Uh, he said straight up, he like channeling Jim Beheim almost. That he said, you know, nothing. There was nothing prettier than Central New York if, if from like May to like September. People joke about that Beheim quote. It's not that inaccurate. Like upstate no. New York is very pretty when it's nice out. Um, the problem is it's not nice out. That much of the year, but like the first and last month of the, of, uh, of well, especially September. September was always like glorious uh, when you came, when you came back to school. It was always so nice. So there is something to that. Um, winter just creeps up on you super quick and lasts forever. As yeah. everyone listening to this knows, yeah. <laughs> the major drawback. But yeah, pretty much everybody listening to this knows. I can't uh, imagine someone listening to this who is like not like 
well that well versed in Central New York winters. Like the diehard Syracuse fan who's never been there. I don't I'm, think that exists. Probably not. Although there, I've, I've seen a couple people though, like comment like, "Hey, first trip to the dome." Like Syracuse fans go, "Hey, my first trip to the dome," and be like, "Hey, like traveling in from out of town." So I think like there are some that exist. Probably on the basketball side more, like people who just yeah. adopted them as like, you know, from New York City or something, but never didn't have like a, a direct like alumni connection or something. I get that, I guess. But it is hard to think of like not having that that experience in the winter there as part of your just general Syracuse identity. That's fair. Yeah. I I, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's also like some visiting Sunbelt fans here, the like people that were stumbling around the internet looking for a... Uh... A Sunbelt preview. Now you Shout have Shout out to the Red Bulls listening. Yeah, it's cold, it's cold upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see you guys one day. Who knows? Actually, we've seen you guys for basketball recently. Yeah, we have. Like last year. So Same that's previous. something. Yeah. Arkansas State's all right at sports. Um, before we get to halftime, Dan, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the NBA Finals. Um, not necessarily getting into Wednesday night's game since that's going on starting up as we speak. How I mean, do you think ignoring game three, do you think the Raptors completely blew it by not pulling out game two when they had every ability to do so? I would be more open to them from having completely blown it. If it wasn't for the Warriors injury issues, uh, Clay's playing tonight. Obviously everyone who's listening to this will know how it turned out. Um, we don't, uh, play is going to play tonight, though, it sounds like. I don't know how limited it'll be. But, like, if they're without KD and they're without Clay, and the Raptors take a 2-1 to one lead tonight, like, it's – it's it, it'll be hard to overcome. It's not hard to overcome for the Warriors, but, like, if, if they're out without those guys at 100% or close to 100% for a lot of time, there's just not that much else, uh, other shooting around. Like, how much are you going to rely on Quinn Cook or, you know, the Draymond to find his 2015 shooting stroke or – or uh, cousins to knock down shots like he has in the past. Like it's it's just the dynamics of the team are, are so limited um, around Steph. If you don't have Katie or uh, Clay, which is something that's new with you know when you have all these star players, it does hurt the depth. So um, had had Clay not gotten hurt last game, I would feel a lot more confident the Warriors had this wrapped up. Now I, I still would obviously bet on them, but uh, if the Raptors take advantage tonight and steal one at Oracle, I think it really changes the uh, complexion of the series here. Yeah, I agree. I, I think to be honest, the Raptors, like, I think they absolutely like blew a golden opportunity. Um, oh, they'd have the them If they beat them without, yeah. with play hurt, they, I mean, play might be more open to playing more if they were down to two, but they would legitimately have them on the ropes. Yeah. I, I think they'd be on the ropes. I, I think that, you know, I, I heard on the Ringers NBA show this week, they talked about, and I think this is completely accurate, like the Warriors can't put together a third quarter like that every game, and the Raptors aren't going to shoot that poorly from, from three every game. So really, if you if you just normalize those two things, the Raptors win that game nine out of ten times. And, and I think that that's, that that's a good and, and a big takeaway here. Uh, obviously, you know, Kevin Durant's impending return, which could be game five-ish, uh, certainly could haunt the Raptors if they can't pull off this game three tonight. I, I still think that the Raptors are the better and deeper team. I, I think injuries could potentially down Golden State. They already had plenty going into this series and they've taken on even more. I think Clay is probably mostly fine. I For right now, I mean, if the Raptors win, I'll completely, uh, you know, go away from this. But 
I know I said Raptor. I know I said Warriors in six initially. I'm going to stick with that for right now. If the Raptors win tonight, however, um, I think it's Warriors. I think it's Warriors in seven if KD returns. I think it's Raptors in seven if if KD does not. Uh, I think I'm taking Warriors either way, depending on if Clay doesn't come back like close to 100, which I I don't think it's that bad an injury. Um, I would probably say the Raptors probably win it. Um, but I'm going to stick with Warriors and Sits just in general, although I kind of think the Raptors win tonight. And then I think the, the KD comes back and the Warriors just roll them, roll them from there. Yeah, I buy that, unfortunately. Uh, why don't we get a little word from our sponsor and then we can go to halftime. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Uh, Dan, what have you been drinking for this last week? Uh, I'm trying to... What was, the, what was the date of our last... The 29th or the 27th? Pulling up my calendar. It was the 29th when we last spoke. Okay, so I, I know what we're saying. Um, so I haven't had that much since then. A couple a couple new or newish things. Um, highlight uh, Kings County Brewers Collective down in Bushwick. Um, I had a Bride of Beach Zombie, which was a pretty low ABV uh, citrusy sour, uh, which is pretty pretty good. Uh, Tasty BC always does uh, pretty good work. Um, I had and then a couple of other things I've been drinking a decent amount of lately. Uh, Toted Tiles from LIC Beer Project, probably my favorite thing from them. Another local brewer, uh, and the still work on the Simple versus Volume Two from Lock City that I've had for a couple weeks here. Very nice. On my end, I had one of the better beers that I've probably had in a while, definitely this year and maybe ever. I mean, and that's that's going to sound weird when you hear the description of it. Uh, Timbo Pills from Highland Park Brewery. Uh, I mentioned I grabbed some cans when I was up there uh, a couple weekends ago. They had a what they're describing as a West Coast Pilsner. It's basically a Pilsner that like kind of uses some some West Coast IPA principles. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic, refreshing, 5.8%. So definitely in my more recent wheelhouse in terms of ABV, I thought it was just an absolutely incredible beer that really kind of, you know, reset the game on Pilsners. I'm surprised I don't see more things uh, written about it, but I, I would personally write something about it just because it was that good of a beer. And I'm kind of sad I only have one can left in my fridge. Also had a uh, duet uh, IPA from Alpine. Had uh, ended up going to one of my uh, favorite bottle shops around here, and they had on draft uh, Kern River Citra, which is uh, one of the better and more, like original uh, double IPAs out here. That kind of started everybody down that road. Uh, had some Blind Pig from Russian River. They happened to have it at that shop as well. Tried out from Imperial Western uh, Super Chief, an IPA uh, from them. They're a brewery that only recently opened um, over actually in Union Station, uh, the train station downtown in LA. I went over to uh, Naja's place, this place down by the Redondo Beach Pier, and had from Pizza Port, Heels Over IPA, uh, and a Mumford uh, That's Fun IPA. So some good stuff. I'll have some more good stuff coming up. I'm going to uh, 
one of the breweries locations down in, in Orange County this weekend. So that'll be a nice little addition. Nice. So with that in mind, we're uh, we're going to talk a little Sunbelt. Everybody here's favorite topic, I'm sure. Uh, well, my preview materials, officially, because I do have them. Um, as mentioned before in, in last season's episode, the Sunbelt has two divisions, despite the fact they only have 10 teams. It's kind I of pointless. Considering how they break down. Yeah, hilariously stupid. Considering it's, you know, an East-West setup, it's really easy to just not do that. You basically have, if you have eight games a year, you just have everybody skip one every year. You have a protected rival or two in there, and it all works out. But instead, uh, Sunbelt decides not to do that at all, and we end up with this setup. So, Dan, why don't we start with Appalachian State, uh, who would be my pick to win the East, and I think... I'd argue probably like the best program top to bottom in, in the Sun Belt, and that's been the case for a while. Uh, does, doesn't mean they always win the conference, but they do seem to be the, the best program overall. Obviously, they're, they're going to be dealing with a little bit of change this year. Um, I know they lost uh, – what's his name? Scott Satterfield. Scott Satterfield. Uh, yeah, Satterfield headed over very, to uh, We will come to know him very well. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, I, I I didn't want Louisville to do a good job with this hire, especially after they struck out on Brom. But uh, they made a really good hire in Satterfield, who I didn't think was going to leave App State, to be honest. Um, and then App State ends up with Eli Drinkwitz, who we'll see. I'm not necessarily sold on Drinkwitz, to be honest. Although I think that he, I think that he has inherited a really good situation here at App State, and, and if you're going to get a head coaching job. You know, at the Sun Belt level, I think this is the one to get. Yeah, I think coaching change kind of defines this season for the Sun Belt. Um, App State, uh, the advanced numbers love them, um, and obviously they don't really take into account the coach at all. Uh, there's no real good way for that to happen. Um, but Drinkwitz is, is a largely an unknown, an intriguing hire, and I think he has a background that fits. Uh, but you know, he, he's very young. He was uh, kind of out, out of left field hire when he happened. I don't think a lot of people expected it or really knew it was, gonna go, was going down when it when it happened after Satterfield left. Um, I think uh, just looking at, like, the, the S&P Plus breakdown, um, they are so far ahead of everyone else in this conference, it's hard not to see them winning it uh, unless something weird happens or unless Drinkwitz is just a total zero. And if that's the case, it could get – pretty rough because he is the play caller as well on offense. I think he's the coordinator. Um, but they return, uh, I think they're one of the, the top teams in terms of returning production. Um, they have a good quarterback in Zach Thomas who's experienced. Um, they have a manageable schedule and they're going to be favored, I think, against everyone except for South Carolina. And obviously, you know, with a Hill Champ team, that wouldn't be a huge upset. Um, and then a ton of still position uh, experience around Zach Thomas. So I think if Satterfield was still there. I think people even be talking about this as like a potential undefeated team. Um, without him, there are definite questions. I just don't see, um, I don't really see an obvious answer to who will take the throne unless there's like an upset in the championship game or uh, Troy just hit their, their higher way better because if obviously Troy lost Neil Brown as well. So um, it makes for a very interesting Sunbelt where there's, there's a lot of talented teams, but they have a lot of transition to undergo as well. 
Yeah, I think that provides a pretty good segue here, actually, with Troy. Um, as you mentioned, Troy also loses their head coach. Uh, Neil Brown headed up to West Virginia after Holgo decided to head to Houston in a probably one of the better fits um, in terms of hires and, and one that I think works out pretty well for Houston. Um, Chip Lindsay takes over at Troy. I think Troy is not the same, like, completely well-oiled machine that App State is. I think Troy has done really well of late, but I think Brown is kind of attributable to that versus, like, App State has kind of dealt with a couple of coaching changes, been really good um, pretty much since they, you know, since they were in FCS, they jumped up to FBS and were successful almost immediately. Like, Troy has had some downturn and then recently jumped back up. Troy also replaces a hell of a lot. Um, on the offensive side of the ball, I know they only have like five starters coming back to lose the quarterback, to lose all the receiving talent, um, at least from starting standpoint. And defensively, they're replacing about half their guys. So I think Troy takes a probable step back uh, this year. And I think that might open the door for an Arkansas State. But you still, like you said, you, you still probably like what App State gives you more than anybody else, if only because of just the consistency and the fact that they have a veteran quarterback and a lot of these teams too, don't necessarily have, you know, the, the returning passing talent coming back and the returning talent overall up and down the roster that app state does. Yeah. But actually bring back uh, Taylor Barker, who was the starter at the beginning of the season last year um, and played really well, but uh, you know, that was a smaller sample size. I think he played like five games before he got hurt. Um, but they, they do lose a lot more than app state. Um, and, and have definite uh, way more questions in terms of the roster itself. I'm also not in love with the Lindsay hire. Um, he was, he's been all over. He was at Auburn most recently. Uh, and then he was set to take over as offensive coordinator under Les Miles at Kansas. And he had that job for like a day or two before uh, Neil Brown left for West Virginia. And then this opened up. Um, but he's, he's kind of a, a journeyman uh, assistant. He's been at like a crazy number of school. I think he, I think I read like 11 in the last 14 years or something. He hasn't um, really even been in like college coaching that long looking at it. Like I, I didn't even realize he was like this green in terms of like college coaching. Like he's, yeah, like his coaching career is pretty much like 05 to now. Like he's following like kind of the, and like Mal, the, the Malzahn track. It's very Malzahnish. Um, right down to the, I mean, obviously he's Alabama instead of Arkansas in terms of the, high school background, which is better for Troy. Um, it, it's, I, I think uh, Bill C. wrote, um, he was uh, like built in a lab to be the head coach of the specific program, but it's, it's not like, uh, you know, a ton of super promising um, assistant. Like he's been in a lot of places that should be valuable, including he coached quarterback for Troy before, but like, I don't think Auburn was super uh, upset about losing him. Uh, to be honest, there's a reason he was going to Kansas. Um, so yeah, I just, I think both these hires have serious questions. I think Drinkwitz probably has more upside. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Considerably younger. Uh, Lindsay is, you know, slightly more experienced, but I think even, even at the places they've been, I think Drinkwitz profiles a little bit better and has been a little more impressive. So, um, Troy, like, you know, there's definite, you can, you can do a lot of damage here. We saw what Neil Brown did and, and how he was able to, to translate into that into a big 12 job. And, and honestly, he probably got that job later than most of us expected. Um, but I'm not sold on Lindsay. Um, and if they had made us, if they had held on to Brown or they had made a slightly uh, more dynamic hire, at least on paper, 
Um, I think I'd be more willing to entertain Troy beating out App State. Uh, it's just hard to see it when, you know, the questions are pretty much even across the board and then App State just brings back more. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think you have to go with App State. I think there's also just, like you said, you can do a lot of damage to Troy. You also do a lot of bad damage to Troy. <laughs> And I feel like, you know, that's not something that necessarily should be discounted. Like, like Larry Blakeney did a really nice job at Troy, but like there's been plenty of, plenty of lapses here um, for the Trojans. And I think it's absolutely worth like, you know, noting that, that, that this is no guaranteed, um, this is no guaranteed success for anyone. Even Blakeney, you know, had his rough patches here and there. Um you know, obviously, you know, some of their past coaches as like Robert Maddox, like even Chan Gailey, like didn't like let set, like, you know, set the world on fire um, at Troy. So I, I think that there's a lot to like, but again, if you're stuck in a West division that has, you know, a well-run program like Arkansas state, uh, I feel like uh, I'm calling them UL Lafayette because I'm not calling them Louisiana uh, because that's not who they are. Um, I feel like, you know, there, there's, there's winnable, there, there's a winnable, division here but there's still two strong programs right under you and again you have app state across the way and i think app state still like until proven otherwise is going to be the class of this league and you're starting to see maybe you know a separation between them and the rest of the teams in this conference that there wasn't the last couple years with troy playing um, potentially above its station a bit yeah it's uh beyond them like it's it's a what are the other schools here? Georgia Southern, I think, actually is in an interesting rebound. So, and they can give people fits with that triple out with the with the option attack, where they've which they've gotten back to after a couple of rough years. Um, Smart. Yeah, the, the thing that works and the entire identity of the program. You should probably do it, <laughs> um, especially when you're not like Georgia Tech, where you know we talked about for a while. Like, there's a good argument that they should not be an option team given the advantages of being in Atlanta. Georgia Southern ain't in Atlanta. They are in Statesboro. Uh, a place I don't never I've never been to and not familiar with, but uh, it's not particularly close to uh, to the 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 hotbed that is Atlanta. And when you've had the back of the type of success that Southern has at like every level, including right when they got to the FBS, uh, I get why you're kind of uh, pedantic about replacing that uh, system. And they didn't ever totally go away from it. It just wasn't as much of a focus um, under uh, what was it, the coach that, that bombed out there real bad. Um, I cannot even remember his name because he was that bad. Tyson Summers. There you go. Yeah, he was not. He, he he was not a fit. I think you brought up the Georgia Tech thing too. I think Georgia Tech moving away from it this year is going to be entertaining to watch. Uh, I think that in general, like, I think that if you're going to go triple option, there's like there's only two successful ways you can do it. Is like a you do not you know air away from it in any capacity the way that Army does. Um, the way that Navy does to some uh, extent, or you go, you do something like Georgia Tech did in its better years um, where, you know, you have really good athletes on the outside who can block and you, and you pass once you've gotten the other team, um, you know, completely bought into, you know, stacking the box against you with the run. So like doing neither of those things and not, and you know, if you're Georgia Southern, not necessarily being able to recruit the type of talent that Georgia Tech can, like, yeah, your, your, your best option is again, the option and, and, and to do everything you possibly can to lean into your identity. And I think, you know, last year bouncing back with a seven and five record seems to be step one toward 
you know, competing once again at the top of this conference. It is pretty funny that it's happened with Lunsford, who was on the staff um, under Summers and was the interim. And it just like the, the rebound happened pretty much right when they fired Summers. So it, it makes you wonder like what he was doing that other people saw was wrong, but he couldn't figure it out. And then like they fire him and they, they look immediately better. And then they're like a solid bowl team last year. Um, just funny how that works out. But um, yeah, I don't think this team quite has the talent, uh, which is, you know, a triple option thing um, of the app states of the Troys, but like that, that obviously both uh, with those two having new coaching staffs and not, having the experience coaching against Georgia Southern, like I think this is a pretty dangerous team if there is a slip up in either uh, App State or Troy to like knock one of them off and maybe steal it. Um, just because like when, when you, you know, we see coaching turnover and I mean, we had our own firsthand experience of like what a new coach versus like Georgia Tech looks like. Um, it's not great. Uh, and both of those schools left to contend with that. I'm not sure how much of the staff, um, that either of those two top schools are familiar with the option or how much of it has been retained uh, from the last half. Usually it's not more than like one or two assistants. So uh, things could get pretty interesting if they're, if the defenses don't really have a, a great idea of what they're doing against this attack. Completely. And you know, one thing I know you mentioned Georgia Southern as a potential contender, if App State slips up, I will add the one caveat on Georgia Southern. Their schedule this year is an absolute bear. Um, they get road games at LSU, at Minnesota. They're on the road against the three best teams in the conference, App State, Troy, and Arkansas State. I think a good Georgia Southern team, and good is in like S&P top 75, 80, could still probably end up going like 7 and 5, unfortunately. But maybe that swings back around next year uh, when you have, you know, th- this is a team that's pretty young, I think, up and down the depth chart. So, you know, you translate all that junior and sophomore talent into – you know, junior and senior talent, that becomes potentially a pretty lethal group in 2020. Yeah, and that's the problem with having the East so top-heavy um, as it is. It's, it's very much like the Atlantic of, of the Sun Belt, where you have the, probably the two best teams in upstate State and Troy, um, and then Southern, who's a very dangerous state, who's had moments, Coastal Carolina, who's not, like, abysmal by any means, versus over in the West, um, where Arkansas State, like what's definitively better than the other teams. Like maybe you get the ULM rising up, but um, Texas State and South Alabama are like running way behind the rest, I think. So it's just a deeper a deeper uh, division overall. And again, 10 teams, there's no reason to have these divisions. Yeah, the Big 12 does fine without them. I mean, granted, the Sun Belt doesn't have the ability to schedule nine games a year. And I understand that aspect of it. But again, I already just spelled out how you could, um, you know, avoid the divisional setup. Um, yeah, before you can we the championship if you want. Because exactly. That's, you know. Yeah, that's a thing you can do. Just do it. Uh, a couple more things before we leave. One, um, have to say, uh, ULM's uh, like alternate uniform, this like kind of red and gold thing that they got going with a ULM script on it, absolutely gorgeous. And I kind of want to play them just so we can see that on the field, because all their other games are pretty much on ESPN Plus. Uh, I'm looking. You Is it the maroon with the... No, I'm looking for it. Uh... <laughs> it's like a white helmet. It's like red. It, it, it's def- definitely a throwback uniform. But it's de- I mean, the fact that ULM can get throwback uniforms that we can is just mind-numbing. <laughs> the ULM has a lot of interesting stuff they, they're, they're doing here. Um, multiple helmet logos. There's camo unis. They have some grays. They have maroons. They have whites. 
Like, Johan gets more, more uniform love than he does. Which is just, uh, I don't even know how to, how to react to that. Um, Sad state of affairs. Yeah, tough, tough scene. Uh, the last, I guess, individual team we'll talk about here, Georgia State. Uh, they are a super interesting program, always, because, you know, I know Bill C. points us out on PAPN all the time, and, and so does uh, Godfrey. Like, if you're going to create a program from scratch, it's Georgia State. You put them in Atlanta, you have them play in Atlanta. There's There's a lot to like about what they've created here, but they just don't really seem to have, and they just never seem to have it together. Like Sean Elliott's done a mildish job. And I just feel like, I feel like Georgia State's always going to be fighting an uphill battle, despite the fact that, again, they have all the elements that should spell like a winning program in the Sun Belt. I think there's, there's something to be said for these other programs that um, largely came up the ranks from, from the lower divisions. App State was a power down there. Georgia Southern was a power down there. Uh, Troy was a little farther back. Like they have actual roots in their program. Georgia State was just—it was a startup, and and it has a ton of potential. Like obviously, if you're if you're choosing to start a college football program, you're choosing Atlanta, maybe over any other city in the country, um, but definitely over like Statesboro or Troy or Boone. Um, but there just aren't those roots, and they they got thrown into FBS super quickly. Um, they've had some moments, like they were the worst team in FBS, I think, for a minute for a year or two. Um, they've made a bowl or two uh, semi-recently, um, probably quicker than people thought given how they started, but it just it has seemed to have like, plateaued a bit. Um, Sean Elliott's fine. He has SEC experience. I think he's recruiting relatively well for the Sun Belt, but um, just not a lot of exciting happening here um, in terms of, like, you know, this isn't a team that I'm going to be strolling through the channels and on a Thursday yeah. night. Well, you can't anymore because now it's all on ESPN+. Plus. Well, I, I have ESPN+. Plus. I don't oh, there you that. go. But um, yeah, it's it's this isn't like there's just nothing nothing super like attractive about this program in terms of like just name recognition. You know, you're gonna see something interesting. Like I can say that about a lot of these other schools. Um, ULM has been been kind of weird and feisty before. Um, Lafayette has a pepper in their logo. That's fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I bring that up every year. I think Southern as, as has a super unique offense. Arkansas State's been feisty. Forever, they're probably going to be the, the West title winners, um, if I had to guess. Um, and then, obviously, App State and Troy are always game. Like, there's a lot to like about a, a lot of these programs. Uh, even, like, South Alabama is, is interesting once in a while. Um, but Georgia State just doesn't, doesn't have it. Uh, maybe the new stadium, uh, or not really new stadium, them taking over Turner Field now that the Braves have, have uh, taken off to the suburbs. Um, we'll we'll kind of change things. The, the Georgia, the now – you know, RIP, the Georgia Dome uh, was dreary when they were playing in the Georgia Dome. I remember they, they were like almost always, I think for a couple of years, they were like literally the first game in, in FBS because they'd play like an FCS and they'd be on like Wednesday night before um, other schools started like on Thursday where their, their normal thing, uh, the normal schedule starts. And there'd be like 15 people in the stadium. <laughs> yeah, it, it's highly unfortunate. I think in general, like, you know, we've talked about this like when during the Big East days, like Big East was formed based on like putting teams in big cities and big markets and like trying it out. I feel like the Sun Belt tried to do the same thing here um, with, you know, like Sun Belt and Conference USA, to be honest, tried to do the same thing here with, you know, like uh, Coastal Carolina is like close to Myrtle Beach. Um, 
obviously like, you know, Charlotte rejoined CUSA when they brought football in. Uh, obviously you have Georgia state, you know, in Atlanta, like there's just a lot of like bigger, like Southern markets that like both of these conferences want to be really good and they should be on paper, but because TV markets don't necessarily dictate how good you are at football, this is kind of what happens where you end up, yeah, your best teams are in Boone, North Carolina and Troy, Alabama. I will say the one thing that Georgia state does have going for it. That is a college football thing. Georgia Southern hates them (laughs) and it's really funny. Oh yeah. The hate comes from the fact that Georgia State just sprang up out of nowhere, and they have like similar uh, similar abbreviations. Uh, Georgia Southern's GS and Georgia State's GSU, and if you mix them up, they will not be happy with you. Um, I've gotten tweets from people, uh, which you wouldn't think, but they find you. Um, it's just uh, they they do have a rivalry, which is something because not every school can say that, including our us, real like honestly. Um, but that hasn't quite. Uh, taken hold and, and kept Georgia State uh, super relevant. Maybe a little bit after that. They do have a, a lot going for them, but but as of now, it's they're still kind of in a holding pattern. Agreed, agreed. That rivalry topic is one for another day. Um, but we kind of wrap up here. So that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noon's Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on anywhere else, and go Orange. Go Orange. <laughs>